We're continuing on in our series now that we call Faith, uh, First Century Faith for the 21st Century, as we go through Paul's epistle to the Roman Church. This is Paul's greatest epistle. Um, my belief is that if you understand the 16 chapters of the Book of Romans, uh, you will have a solid doctrinal foundation for the Christian faith. You will have a solid understanding of the New Testament to understand the Book of Romans. And so that's kind of fantastic. Now, um, I want to say a couple things before we get into the sermon. This is a very technical sermon. What I mean by that is last week we were talking about kind of a spiritual anthropology of the human soul, how God has designed us to worship him. We don't worship him. We start worshiping ourselves and we turn to spiritual savages. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Today we're going to be looking at all of Romans chapter 2. And uh, before we get into it, this is a technical sermon. This is um, kind of a, a sermon of precision. And there's going to be definitions of words. There's going to be um, talking about how the law applies to us in a way. So Paul's argument in the chapter we're looking at, Romans 2, is very much about, uh, it'll feel like a scholar. It will feel like a, uh, like a lawyer making his case. And that's how the chapter is, is laid out. So that's how we're going to approach this. And so just to give you a heads up, it's uh, going to require some mental acumen and your full attention mentally to really get what Paul's talking about. But I think it's going to be fantastic because it's going to answer some of the key questions that are salient to the 21st century. Um, the issues that Paul raises in this chapter are largely the issues that will um, end up damning 95% of the people that ever walk planet Earth. Because they don't understand what Paul and the scriptures are saying in Romans 2. They're going to miss the kingdom of God entirely. Uh, so we're going to look at that in a moment. Before we actually read the passage, um, I want to um, just go forward and let's talk about the big picture. Now, how this fits into the first three chapters of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Paul's working towards an argument, which we're going to get to next week where he's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1, where Paul made the case that all Gentiles are guilty before God because they've left the worship of God to worship themselves. And uh, he, that was his argument of why the Gentiles are guilty before God according to God's law. Now today, we're going to focus on Romans chapter 2. And his main argument is that the Jews... And the Gentiles both are guilty before the law. And that's the primary crux of his argument in Romans chapter 2. Um, let's move forward here. And so in Romans chapter 2, the title of this message is The Jews and the Gentiles are guilty before God's law, before the law. And that's the primary thrust of the message. So let's stand now and let's read God's word together. We're reading... The entire chapter of chapter 2, um, you can just follow along on your app or on your uh, Bibles. We don't have the entire chapter uh, for you right now, so just go ahead and follow along in your own way. Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We just sang about that a few moments ago. Verse 5, But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12. For all have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcised scission, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read through this uh, amazing argument that Paul is making, this legally uh, uh, airtight case of why all Gentiles and Jews are guilty before the law, we do not want to miss, Lord, the divine grace that you have given to us in revealing your law, because ours leads to the road of destruction. And so we want to give this our full attention, Lord, knowing that the law is here to lead us to you, to point us to you. And anything that does that, Lord, is worthy of 
of us uh, breathing and taking it in so that we may worship you better and understand the condition of man without you in Christ Jesus and, and without Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now have a seat. Thank you. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, before we get into some parts of this passage, I need to define a few terms. And, um, and we're, again, we're just get a little bit of a technical sermon here. So Paul is talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the law. Now, just a short definition of these terms. When Paul talks about the Jews throughout this passage, what he is referring to is uh, what the Old Testament called the Hebrews. The Old Testament called, called the Israelites. And the Jews is simply a term for the Old Testament terms, Hebrews and Israelites. It's all the same. The Jews are the people uh, that are Abraham's descendants. They are the chosen people. They are God's people who uh, God revealed his law to. They are the people that um, have circumcised male organs as a way of showing their their set-apartness from the pagan ways of uncircumcision. And so this is who the Jews were. And they had good reason. They had the traditions. They had the heritage. They had the law. They were the chosen people. They interacted with God directly. And so they had good reason to believe that they were set apart, but they did go astray. When Paul uses the phrase Gentiles throughout this passage, he is referring to people who are not Jewish. uh, And the Jewish people would have essentially said anyone who's not Jewish or who is not proselytized to the Jewish religion. You could be, you know, born in the land of Canaan, but if you said, uh, I-, I want to worship the God of the Jews, that's, that's, uh, that's like Ruth, right? Ruth the Moabite in the book of Ruth. She was not Jewish, but she decided to follow Na- Naomi, who was Jewish, and become part of the Jewish people by worshiping their God. And so, uh, but if you're not doing either one, not worshiping the Jewish God, or you were not in the Jewish community, you were considered Gentile, which is pagan, unsaved, and unclean. This passage will also use a term called the law. Now, this is very important. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, whenever you see the word law, it can refer to really, and even into the New Testament, one of four definitions of the same word law. Law can mean the Ten Commandments. Law can mean um, the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. The law can refer to the entire Old Testament, or the law can refer to uh, the rabbinical traditions that were extra-biblical. This is what the Pharisees would write down, all these extra interpretations of the Torah, of the Old Testament, and they would kind of write, how, here's how to live, here's how to interpret, here's all the rules you follow. Uh, but uh, that's really what uh, uh, it became a man-made religion. For the context of this passage in Romans chapter 2, when you see the law, it is really referring to this second definition, the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, these, these uh, especially in Leviticus, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where you have these laws and, and Moses uh, giving exposition through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what the, the Ten Commandments meant. And so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. We need to go through one more definition before we go into the passage as well. Let's go on to the next. Now, when you see the law, let's go ahead and go on to the next uh, slide. When you see the law, we're talking about the Torah, 
The purpose of the law was primarily twofold when you see this in Scripture, theologically. Number one, the, the purpose of the law was to point us to the character of God, the righteous character of God. We wouldn't even know what God's like was it not for the law. The law he lays down the law, laws for the Israelite people in terms of how to treat our neighbor, how to worship God. Um, and secondly, not only is the law there to teach us about the righteous character of God, but secondly, it is meant to reveal the unrighteousness of human beings, of man, in our natural spiritual state. We're actually to look at the law and say, uh, I'm, I've fallen so short. See, the mistake that people make when they look at the Ten Commandments, and this goes to show you how pagan our culture is today. Our, if you ask the average person, uh, do you think you can live up to the Ten Commandments? They would say, oh, it's so lofty. I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, that's so, such a big deal. I don't know if I can do it. And, you know, and what we don't realize is that the Ten Commandments are not some lofty goal for us to try and live up to. It's really the basic, God's basic definition of what is minimally acceptable. And so, what is the Ten Commandments really saying? Just, hey, if you're married, can you just stick with your own wife? If, if you have stuff, can you like not take other people's stuff? If you don't like someone, can you just like not murder them? Okay. And, and people are like, hey, can you just like not take the Lord's name in vain? Can you like do these? And we're like, oh man, it's so hard. So what well, goes to show you how barbaric we have become, right? So now can we not achieve that standard? We can't even come to the basic minimum here. And so it convicts us. And so the law is there to reveal both. Uh, and a lot of people think that the law has given us, uh, the law that God has given to us is so that if we do enough of it, then we'll be saved. We'll be like in with God, into heaven, if we can just do enough of the Ten Commandments. And that's not the purpose of it, right? It's to point us to God and point us to the wickedness of our own heart. Okay, so let's go into this. As we go into our passage here in Romans chapter 2, um, we want verse 1 through 10, 29, we're looking at the Jews and the Gentiles are guilty before the law. Now, here's how we're going to take this. We're going to take this a little bit out of order in the chapter. First, we're going to talk about verses 6 through 13. And the purpose of us starting there is to start from um, the argument that Paul is making that, hey, God's fair. He's, he's showing us the criteria in which he judges all human beings. After we do that, we're then going to go look at how God applies that standard he just talked about to the Jews. And then how he applies that to the Gentiles, the law. The law for Jews, law for Gentiles. And then we're going to look at the law of the Spirit to end with. Okay, so let's look at this first. What is the criteria that God judges all human beings? beings by. In verse 6 through 10, um, he begins, Paul starts to unpack how God judges human beings. And I think a lot of us, um, a lot of people just in general would agree with this, whether they're Christian or not. Verse 6, um, it says, God's going to render to everyone according to what? His works. Your goodness. 
you're evil. If you're good, you get rewarded. If you're evil, you get punished. He says in verse 7, if, um, if you're patient, if, you, if you're committed to the well-being of others, if you're seeing the glory, honor, and immortality of, uh, of the things of God, so if you're basically living your life in goodness and trying to glorify the things that God wants, trying to honor the things that God wants, and trying to uh, work for the things that will last for, forever, then God will give you eternal life. Okay? And you see this in verse 7. If you skip down to verse 10, same thing. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who what does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Sounds pretty good, right? If you and I, in our lives, based upon not what we want to do one day, but our actual works, are, and God judges our works as good in his eyes, then you will have glory and honor and peace and all. You will have eternal life. But conversely, in verse 8 and 9, he says, on the other hand, if your works are self-seeking, verse 8, if you're not obeying his truth, if you're um, obeying unrighteousness, and there's going to be wrath and fury for you from God. Verse 9, there will be tribulation, just to make sure we don't misunderstand verse 8, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. And when he says wrath, when he says fury, when he says tribulation and distress in verse 8 and 9, he is saying, it's not like, hey, you're going to have bad weather or, you know, your kid might get sick. Wrath, fury, tribulation, distress, that is eternal. That is eternal damnation in hell is what he's talking about. So to summarize up until this point, and then, in, and then he says in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. That sounds pretty fair to me so far. I think most people who actually believe in God whether they're Christian or not, would say, okay, that sounds fair. What the argument right here from verse 6 through 11 is, if you're good in God's eyes, you'll be rewarded. Now and in eternity, you'll be rewarded. If you're bad or evil in God's eyes, you're going to get punished for all of eternity. That sounds fair. And um, he goes on to say, well, what's the criteria? What is the criteria? Now that we've established that our works will be judged by God, the good works will be rewarded, the bad will be punished. Now, how does God then, what kind of criteria does God use to then judge our works, whether they're good or bad? Answer, verse 12 and 13. Paul goes on to say this. For all who have sinned without the law, and again, when he says law here, he's talking about what? The Torah, he's talking about God's law specifically, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, not the hearers of the law who are righteous, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not if you sit in church. It's actually if the law has transformed your life to, uh, to move you to be doing what is righteous in God's eyes, okay? That makes a lot of sense now. It's very clear what the Bible's saying. We now have the criteria. It's our works. We now have the, the standard of judgment, God's law, in which he says, again, verse 13, all 
who have sinned without the law, and um, all who have sinned under the law. So this is everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone. Now the reason why people don't like this is because what God is saying to us is this. I, God, am sovereign. I, God, have the right and I have also chosen to judge you. And I have judged you not by your own standard. I've judged you by my law and my standards. I, sovereign God, have chosen what to judge you by, and I have chosen the criteria to judge you by, which is my, not your, law. Now, the reason why people don't like that is because we don't like the idea of someone, someone judging us, especially God. What we want in our natural flesh is we want to judge ourselves. We want to establish our own law, our own criteria to say, look, if I myself determine that I did more good things than bad things, then I should be good with God. That's my own law. My own law says, well, um, if I compare myself to like the evilest people in humanity, as long as I'm better than them, then I'll be okay. I should be okay with God. See, that's what I naturally want. I want my standard of law for myself, and I want my standard of law compared to other people. And then we live in a culture, on top of that, that says to me, I shouldn't judge people at all. I shouldn't have someone to judge me. Okay, now I, got, I have laws, you know, that if I break, I get punishment. But when it comes to matters of spirituality or your character, no, you can't judge me, pastor. Because the world around, hey, this is the 21st century, the world around me says, we don't judge each other. Everyone gets to choose what they want. And we all have to affirm the rightness of the choices that other people make. Or we're like judgmental bigots who hate people of other races. Or whatever it might be. Other sexualities, right? And so we live in a culture that does not like the idea of people judging other people with race, with sexuality, with gender. And so it's no wonder why people reject God. Because in a post-truth, post-Christian era that defines the unregenerate 21st century context, uh, the worst thing you can say to people in terms of, in their mind, is God has the right to judge you and he has judged you. God is sovereign to decide the criteria in which that happens and to choose um, who uh, comes to him and who doesn't. And it is his sovereign choice and we are to... Uh, obey it and to to honor that that that's one of the worst things that people want to hear we're supposed to say it anyway though right but you can see the context we live in that's why people don't like this because it takes the idea of judgment and law out of our hands and it puts it squarely where it belongs with god conversely though that's why we don't a lot of people don't like it why should we like it though why should we like verse 6 through verse 13? Why should we like the idea that the one who gets to judge is not us? Why should we like the idea that his 
his choice of judgment is our works. Why should we like the idea that it is his law, not our law? Why is that actually the better way than all the reasons why we don't like it? The reason why it is really the better way is because is really for two reasons. Number one, it is because if you're a Christian, you have come to the conclusion that uh, God is more trustworthy than God is more trustworthy than man. You have come to the conclusion that the heart of God is more trustworthy than the heart of man. You have come to the conclusion that uh, God's truth is better than your own limited version of your own truth. You have come to the conclusion that God makes better judgments than you do, than other people do. God has a better way of establishing what is true versus false, right versus wrong, good versus evil, than man does. And so when we come to that conclusion, we realize, no, it actually is better. Because the belief in a sovereign God who judges by the criteria of works according to his law, is better than the alternative, which is what? You and I being sovereign, you and I judging by our own law, you and I making a determination whether works are good or bad. So that's the first reason we, we believe that God is more trustworthy than man. And secondly, the second reason why we should like this is because it is actually a good thing. When you read in verse 8 and verse 9, where he says, those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And he says, there's wrath, fury, verse 9, tribulation, distress. That's important. That's good. Because you want to know as a Christian that God's justice will win in the end. You want to know as a Christian that there will be wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress for those who persist in evil. Okay? Because if, if there is no God to punish that, and you may not get to see it in this world, but it will happen in, in eternity. If there is no God to punish that and to hold people accountable, then um, it, it, it's a pretty hopeless and despairing place this earth is, right? When there's no accountability ultimately and people get to do what they want, not face ultimate punishment. People don't get away with evil ultimately. And that is actually what we need. We need to know. It's not, this isn't written because we needed it. It's actually written because it's true. But if you think about it, it's exactly what we need. When you're a child, you want to be able to look at your parents and say, even though I may not um, get justice um, among my other nine-year-olds or you know, 12-year-olds or 15-year-olds that I'm with, I know that in my household, my parents that are over me will provide a just home, that they will stand up for me if I'm being bullied at school or taken advantage of. And it do, the, the ultimate responsibility for justice does not rely on my own shoulders. Children need and want that. That's the right way a family should work. Are we children of God? And then our heavenly fathers, just like a child needs that from the parents, we need that from God. We need to know that he will make all things right and just, and there will be judgment for those who deserve it, ultimately. And so that's why we should like this, this actually. Um, let's move on. 
Okay, so let's, now that Paul has established in verse 6 through 13, um, the criteria which we will be judged and the consequences, now he turns his uh, theological arsenal to the Jews. In verse 1 through 5, and this is a little bit before that path, that, those verses actually, but in verse 1 through 5, Paul is now making the argument why the Jews who had the law, who are God's chosen people, why they're guilty before the law. So you look in verse 1 through 5, and he says, um, you know, my fellow Jews, and that's who he's, who he's talking to, you, uh, you pass judgment, verse 1. You're passing judgment on another, but you don't realize you condemn yourself. And he says this in verse 2. Um, I'm sorry, and he says this in verse 1. You condemn yourself because when you judge, you're practicing the very same things that you're judging other people on. Verse 2, and so therefore the judgment of God is coming to you as well. The judgment of God is coming to you as well. Um, the Jews had the law. They judged others by it. But they couldn't keep it themselves. And so Paul says, you, um, you were under God's judgment. And he gives some illustrations on this. Uh, you can stay here, but I'm just going to read this in verse 21 and 22. And he's going to give in verse 21 and 22 of the same chapter illustrations of what he's talking about in verse 1 and uh, verse 2. So he says in verse 1 and uh, 21, 22, he says, You then, now he's talking to the Jews, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say uh, that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? And he's turning his theological guns on the Jews, his fellow Pharisees and Jews, because he knows that his own countrymen who hold the law, who judge other people by the law, are breaking the very laws that they are calling other people to. And he's, he knows their hearts. He knows, you know what, they rob people. They rob the poor. They steal things, you know. They may be stealing things from the synagogue or from the temple, or they're stealing things even from pagan temples and profiting for it. Um, they're committing adultery. And um, so he knows their hearts. And he's saying it's really a heart issue. It goes to show you, right? Um, the human heart despises law, the law. When you're a baby, when you're a kid, um, there's a reason why, like kids, they don't come out of the womb. That first year, that second year, that third year, that fourth year of life of kid, uh, of the kid's life, the parent is saying no far more than they're saying yes. The parent is it's constantly saying, oh, you know, I got to watch and make sure you don't go into the other room or like, I got to pick up your mess or like you're crying because, and you know, when I took that away from you, you're not supposed to have it, Right. And we and, and you start the, the kid starts to get more cognitive ability to understand the parent, what means yes, what means no, what are the rules, and they rebel against it naturally. Kids don't naturally say, I immediately want to obey, and this is rare occasion where I don't. Now we have to drum it into them of why they need to obey. Why? It's because 
The human heart despises rules and laws. And we can't keep them in the end. If you removed the threat of punishment from your children, and you just said, don't do that, and you just trusted the, the altruistic nature of their own heart, do you think that they would actually learn? No, they wouldn't, right? If you removed all punishment from that. But we all do it, because if you saw a kid running amok with no rules or no enforcement of those rules, what would you say? You'd say, oh man, that kid's, what's wrong with that parent? That kid, but you know what you'd really say? If you're a parent, especially, you go, what's wrong with those parents? How could they allow that, right? Like, I get the kid is responsible for themselves, but what's wrong with those parents, right? Um, so, make sure you behave yourself, because they're watching me and mommy. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're pretty good. You're pretty. <laughs> so, again, in verse 1 and verse 2, notice this. The Jews were making judgments. The issue was that they were hypo- hypocrites. The issue was they were teaching the law. They were judging other people as, oh, you're so pagan, you're, so, you're just so under God's judgment. They weren't even doing it themselves. That's the issue of their own hypocrisy. The issue was not, hear me on this, the issue was not that Paul is scolding them for saying, uh, well, you, he, Paul was not saying you have no right to make a judgment. See, as Christians, we are supposed to make judgments. That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said, uh, don't judge superficially, but make a righteous judgment. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he says, you know, take the plank out of your own eye, but not just to you know, judge yourself, but if you read the passage, it's actually take the plank out of your own eye so that what? You can then make a judgment of your brother to take the plank out of their own eye. So we're actually supposed to make righteous judgment. You're supposed to make a judgment on what you're taught, what you're learning, what you're laying into your mind. You're supposed to make a judgment on what is righteous behavior versus not according to scripture. You are supposed to make righteous judgment. You are not supposed to be overly judgmental um, putting burdens on people they cannot bear that are extra biblical. You are not supposed to be hypocrites in your judgment. And so, um, you know, Jesus, the, the woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 8, you all know the story. Woman caught in adultery, Pharisees bring her before Jesus saying, so woman's caught in adultery, uh, what do you say? And they're trying to trap him because, uh, you know, is he going to give him mercy or is he going to obey the law of Moses, which is supposed to die for adultery? And uh, the passage says in John 8, Well, Jesus just knelt down on the ground. He wrote in the sand. Uh, We don't know this. Commentators speculate in that passage. It's just speculation that what Jesus was writing with his finger in the sand were the sins of the Pharisees that they could see. And that's when he stands up and he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then you, you know the story. They drop their stones and they leave. That's the issue. They were judging with hypocrisy and they were involved in the same kinds of things. To get a feel at like one millionth of a level of what God might feel about this, the idea that what's being communicated here, God does not, God hates hypocrisy. He hates judgmental uh, uh, people who say they worship God. They're overly judgmental and they're hypocritical and the same things they're judging other people for. He hates that. Why would he? Okay, now you think about it. 
Uh, again, I'm using all these family examples. Um, when you're married, all right, one spouse knows the other spouse. They know what pleases the other spouse. They know what triggers the other spouse's buttons. Uh, you are around each other all the time. And there is ample opportunity every day, every week, to observe the other spouse's behavior, to listen to their words, what they're telling you as another spouse, to listen to what they're saying to the children, and to see if those words align in their own life with their own actions. And one of the things that gets under the skin of me and Lorraine in our own marriage is when one of us, and actually under my skin, if I, especially when I know I'm doing it, is when we're like, hey, you know what? You're being like that. And you shouldn't be like that. You should be like this. Because being like that is wrong for, you know, as a Christian, it's wrong for our family. It's not healthy. You should instead not be like that. You should be like this. This is much better. So let's commit to being like this, not that. Okay? And then, okay, we're like, oh, yeah, and you feel like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, I don't want to hear this. I'm being lectured and so like that. Uh, but you're right. But then you see the person who's lecturing doing the same thing that they just told us not to do. And we're like, what? You just said, you know, don't argue in front of the kids, and yet you're arguing in front of the kids. Yeah. So I will take most of the blame on that one. But the point is what? We know, we know what hypocrisy is like, right? And it just drives you crazy, right? The self-righteous. That's what... Um, that's the thrust of what Paul is saying here. But notice this. He says, um, verse 3 and 4, but uh, man, you know, you judge, you practice, um, you, you think you'll escape the judgment. Verse 4, actually, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing, follow this, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is a reference to what theologians call common grace. Common grace is seen in Matthew chapter 5, uh, where Jesus says that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. It is seen in Acts chapter 14, where uh, Paul um, is, uh, is giving a, a message and he says, God, your creator, who uh, has sent the rain to give you goodness and to give you fruitfulness in your crops. And uh, he's speaking to unbelievers there. Common grace is what God gives to us to lead us towards repentance. God gives common grace to everyone. Well, what does that mean, common grace? What are we talking about? God gives common grace to everyone. It means this. Theologically, common grace means that God has delayed his wrath to wipe everyone out the moment they're born in sin. And he delays, he gives patience, and he, he doesn't give us the wrath that we deserve even at birth. Because of our sinfulness. That's common grace. He withholds that. Common grace is him giving you blessing. Whether you're a believer or not. Just in life. The ability to have good health. The ability to enjoy good food. The ability to look at the beauty of nature he's created. That's common grace. Whether it has nothing to do with you're a believer or not. That's just given to every human being. That in general. Second, thirdly, common grace is that um, you are able to not be as evil as you could be. 
So God gives you the grace to not always be your worst. And the only thing that holds you back from constantly being the worst you can be is God's grace. So when he says in verse four, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He's talking about God's common grace in your life. And if you don't realize that verse five, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so this is his argument that the Jews who were descendants of Abraham, circumcised, had the law, were God's chosen people. They were the ones who were hypocritical because the law could not save them. And the human heart rebels against rules and divine standards. And, and Paul knew this and he proved it. And it's true in our own lives as well. Secondly, he's going to go on to this a little bit later on. Now he's going to make his case against the Gentiles using the law, but in a different way. In verse 14 through 16, and this is a very, just these three verses, you guys, is going to answer one most one of the biggest questions that people have about what happens to people who have never heard of the gospel. Okay, you've, you've heard this question before. Uh, what's going to happen to those kids in Africa, in Asia, in that small remote tribe that no missionary has ever been to? Is it fair to them? They die. No one ever heard God. You didn't have internet connection, whatever it was. And uh, they die and they come before God. Is that really fair? Right? You've heard that question before? Well, what's the answer to that? And you know what, you guys? I have heard many people, pastors. I, I just heard within the past six months, the most well-known evangelists in the 20th century get it wrong. Because they asked him, well, what, what, what do you think? You know, you, you spoke all over the world. What about these people that never heard the gospel? What, what's going to happen to them? His answer, and I had to watch it like three times to make sure, you know, I was hearing him correctly. His answer was, you know what? God will just let them, uh, he'll look at the light that they had received, whatever light, and he'll just judge them on that. And if they had responded correctly to that light, then, uh, you know, he'll, he'll embrace them and they'll save him. That was his answer. I heard one of the most well-known Christian apologists today say the same answer. He was asking a Q&A, what happens to those who never heard the gospel? Well, they'll, if God will just judge them by the light that they have, and if those who have done a good enough job, he'll let them into heaven. Wrong. What Paul is saying in verse 15, 14, 15, and 16 actually gives the answer. And follow me guys on this, because uh, this will give you an insight into what the future judgment will look like. So he says this in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. And remember, this is under the judgment of the Gentiles according to the law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, so that's the law of the Torah, remember? This is the people who have never heard of you know, the Bible, etc. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Stop. What does that mean? It means... Even though a person has never heard the gospel per se or been exposed to the word of God, what Paul is saying here in verse 14, in the first part of verse 15, is that God has written onto the hearts of all human beings, no matter when you lived or where you live, the basic moral code of what is right or wrong, according to God. Examples. 
most people throughout human history, you could say pretty much every society throughout human history, has a basic understanding that, you know what, it's wrong to go murder other people at will. It's wrong to have a child and just go, oh, that's your child? I'm taking them as my child now. Most, most people say, hey, that's wrong at some level. Okay? Most peop- the, the, the people know inherently that stealing other th- people's stuff is wrong. They may not worship the same God, but they have this moral general code of what's right and wrong. And God has given that to people. And he says this, um, verse 15, part B. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts, follow this, accuse or excuse them. Accuse or excuse when, verse 16, on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We've all been given a standard of right and wrong. We know that intuitively. Step one. Step two. Paul is saying, when an unbeliever dies, they're going to face God's judgment. See that when he says in verse 16, God judges the secrets of, and he says on that day, verse 16, that God judges. What he's talking about there in verse 16 is what scripture calls the great white throne judgment. It's talked about in Revelation 20. You can look at it later. The great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 is a judgment that only unbelievers will face. No believer will face this. And at the great white throne judgment, you'll come before God, and God is going to open up these books, and on these books has every deed, thought, word you have ever thought, spoken, or done. It's all recorded in God's books. It will essentially be read back to you as an unbeliever. And the standard will be, does, it, does all of this perfect record of your thoughts and words and actions, how does that line up when he says in verse 16, by the life of Christ Jesus? Does it measure up? Now follow this, you guys. When he says here in verse 15, their conscience will what? Bear witness, and it'll do two things. It will be conflicting. It will excuse on one hand, but on the other hand, it will accuse. So what's going to happen? The unbeliever will come before God's great great white throne of judgment. The books will be opened of everything they've ever about their life. Jesus will be the standard. It will be basically, you'll get to see what it all, and when that is exposed to you from birth till the time you die, this is what's going to happen in your own conscience. You're going to say, yeah, I'm glad you saw that, God. That was a good thing. Yeah, I'm glad you got that recorded. And your conscience will excuse you. But then as other things are read back to you, your conscience, it says, will accuse you. And you go, oh, I, I didn't know you knew about that. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You recorded that? Oh, man. And it will constantly, you go back, accuse, excuse, accuse, excuse. And what God is basically doing is he's saying, look, let's be, I'll be fair. You never heard the gospel. You never were exposed to God words. Fair enough. I'm going to judge you. Follow this. By the standard of morality that you yourself live by. And we'll just see. 
were you able to live up to your own standard that I wrote on your heart? A basic good and bad. We're going to look at your whole life. And your own conscience is going to be one to accuse you. That is why unbelievers who come before the great white throne judgment, nobody, and if, by the way, if you come before the great white throne judgment, you ain't getting out, okay? I mean, everyone's going to be found guilty. That is why nobody, no unbeliever who comes before the great white throne judgment will walk away from there, go on their way to the lake of fire, saying, ah, oh, that was really unfair, God. No, they're going to say, no, I accuse myself. This is totally fair of what I deserve. Okay, so that's why the issue, you guys, we're supposed to go out into the, all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ, and we need to be obedient to that. However, even if people never hear that, the unregenerate will still be judged because their own conscience will convict them. And that is a mind blower. And you think about the implications, the logic of it, of why we are all guilty, Jew with the law or Gentiles convicted by the law that is written on their own heart, their, their conscience bears witness against them. So, um, some good news now, go on, is he ends the chapter in verse 28 and 29. He says, for one is a Jew, that's a true believer now that he's using uh, the word Jew there, who is, who is merely one, one is no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is his circumcision outward, that's an act of good work, Circumcision shows showing separation from the world and physical. Verse 29, but a Jew, or a true believer in this case, is one inwardly, that's in your heart, in your soul. And the circumcision is not of the male organ, but is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by trying to keep the law on your own, that's the letter, but in your heart, by the spirit. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right, that's beautiful, right? He's saying whether you are a Jew that's guilty according to the written law, whether you're a Gentile that is guilty according to the internal law that accuses you and your conscience in the end, you can be saved. The good news of the gospel is that a true believer, a true Jew, is one whose heart, uh, God has cut away the dead flesh of the heart and spiritually circumcised it so that the Holy Spirit comes in and he does that work to breathe life and God into you through the gospel, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why the praise is not from man, it's from God. Um, Closing scripture here. This is why Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, He expands on verse 29 that we just read. He said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life, verse 2, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I close um, with this. Now, some of you might have been listening to the sermon. It was a technical sermon, challenged you intellectually, kind of like almost like a, in a legal sense. This is Paul's case. We do not want to go away from Romans chapter 2 simply saying, well, Pastor Chris, that was, that was a really intellectually stimulating sermon. 
well, Pastor Chris, that gave me kind of like this deeper knowledge into my faith that uh, I can just kind of file away to help me as I go, hey, that's good, that's good. I'm glad if that's the case. But really, I think in addition to that, we want to come away from a sermon like this and say, you know what? This is a good reminder to me that uh, 95% of the people I come into contact with are going to be perishing as Jews or perishing as Gentiles. And it's so tragic how many people will fall into this trap the Jews fell into. I'm a good enough person. It'll be okay with God. No, even if I don't live it out perfectly. How many people fall into the trap of the Gentiles? I'm a good enough person. God won't judge me. Oh, no, your conscience will convict you. Oh, I didn't know that. The reason why we go out to the Artesia Street Fair, we look at people like Paul and Alice. They wouldn't even be here, you guys, had we not been at the fair uh, back in, what, like 2000, you know, um, 18 or 19 or, or whatever it was the last time before COVID. And um, the reason why we go out there is because we see all the, the thousands of people that will walk past our booth and say, you're a Jew that's going to be guilty of the law. You're a Gentile that's guilty of the law. See, the reason why we do stuff like this is because for you as a Christian, like we're all busy. We're all busy, right? I get it. And it's not a guilt trip right now, but I, I need to say this. The reason why we do these things is because it is our declaration as Christians that this kind of chapter in Romans 2 is not just a theological treatise for us to understand. It is a reminder to us as believers that the people we interact with are lost, headed for the fury and wrath and punishment of God. It is our declaration as Christians that we who believe have now been moved by the spirit of God's grace to glorify him, to honor him, to to work for the things that are immortal because we have eternal life. And part of the act of spiritual maturity, if there's any way you can join us next Saturday, is to say, this sermon reminded me of the great doctrinal truths of the Christian faith, not just for my theological edification, but to remind me to move towards the Jews and the Gentiles that are perishing. And if God can use me in the slightest way to rescue people, then I am his servant and I am his slave and I will make time. I'm going to be out there at the Artesia Street Fair from 4 to 10 at night. I'm going to make that commitment. Why? Not because primarily to motivate you, but because I believe that these people, these precious people, matter to God. And most all the people that walk by will be lost and perishing. If you're actually grateful for your salvation and you have the opportunity to be out there, it is incumbent upon you to really think about joining us and being out there. Okay? You can make your own choices. All right? We're not going to judge you and stuff. But uh, you better be there or you're going to burn in hell. All right? All right? Let's close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Okay. <laughs> make sure that makes it onto the recording. All right. Because it shows you're not really a Christian, you guys. All right. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, um, uh, as we close together, uh, we're thankful for the grace of your great truths that you have given to us uh, because we realize we would be completely lost in our own definition of the law and, uh, and who you are and what we might be judged or not judged by. 
And it's your grace to us that has given us a perspective on um, the eternity that people face and as well as the, the saving grace of your work in our lives for those of us who believe. And so thank you, Lord, for our time together. May this sermon um, and Paul's legal argument, uh, may it really ground us in our faith um, to not be swayed by every cunning wind of doctrine, uh, but to grow up in all things in, in the love and knowledge and maturity of Jesus Christ. I'm in Jesus' name, amen.